pretty cool story, isn't it? You know, I, uh, as I watched that, two things happened. One, I got hungry for pizza. And uh, so all of you are invited to the nearest pizza place um, to buy your own pizza. But um, secondly, I was thinking about the power of a dollar. And I was thinking about the fact that this little, you know, pizza place in Philadelphia, they are making an impact into the lives of individuals, but it's not really the pizza place that's doing the work. It is actually the people that are the patrons of that pizza place who are helping to take a dollar that they have and really to kind of pay it forward. They're they're taking that dollar and they're helping to buy a slice of pizza for someone else who may not have a dollar on their own to buy their own food. I mean, we just celebrated what God did through us to help through Must Ministries, the the folks in our community that are needy and maybe just kind of needed a hand this, this week or in the coming weeks. And, and so we're thankful that God allowed us to be a part of that work. But I was thinking about the fact that a dollar doesn't seem like a whole lot. Now, I love things that I can buy for a dollar. You know, I love it that a few, maybe a year or so ago, McDonald's changed that any size drink that they have on their menu can be purchased for a dollar. I love that because I'm usually nursing a sweet tea pretty much 24 hours a day. And so if you go to some places, it's like $11 for a large sweet tea. But if you go to McDonald's, it's just a dollar. I mean, I feel like because of my kids being in my car, I feel like I can find a dollar between my seats and, you know, somewhere in the ashtray or something of the car. I mean, like I I can find some change. I can scrounge up a dollar and get a sweet tea, but it doesn't seem like a dollar can buy that much, except that what we just watched is that a dollar can actually change someone's life. Now you go, no, that sounds like something you're kind of saying, okay, it doesn't really change their life. I mean, it just helps them with a meal. But we heard a couple people say, hey, listen, I've been in some hard times. And the fact that someone else had come before me and they had paid a dollar and put a post-it up on the wall, and then I was able to walk in when I didn't know where I was going to eat food, and I could grab that post-it and walk up with no shame and hand that in as the payment for food for me, that that, that one girl said, hey, now I'm I'm able to come back and pay it forward as well. And so she put post-its up there. The one guy said, hey, it tastes even better knowing that it was a gift from someone. The fact that one dollar could make a difference in anybody's life. And so, you know, if I'm walking around Philadelphia, if I've seen this story, like I would like to think that I want to participate in this kind of endeavor, that I would go to that place and I would, you know, I would buy a couple dollars worth of pizza maybe every time I was in there just for someone else. Because to me, that seems like a good deal. It seems like I could just spend a dollar or two or three and actually make a larger impact than where else I might spend a dollar or two or three in other places, because I like to get a good deal. I'm always looking for a good deal. We were talking before service about buying cars and buying computers and buying small electronics. And I love to buy, I don't buy a lot of things brand new. Now, there's a few things I only buy new, but other things I like to buy used. I like to look for a deal. I like to find something somebody's getting rid of at a low price and see if I can't haggle with them. When we went to New York City, and we've been a couple of times, I love to go to Chinatown. And you know what my favorite thing to buy there is? Purses. Not for me, obviously, for my wife. She loves to buy the purses. But you know what I love to do? I love to negotiate for purses. I love to walk in and they say, hey, uh, you know, we've got this purse. Do you want it? And and I'll be like, yeah, how much? And they'll say, oh, $100. And I just act like I'm walking away. And then it's like, oh, now it's $50. Man, it lost a lot of value pretty quickly. And I'm like, no, will you take 20? 
And they're like, oh, no, 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 you're robbing me blind. And I'm like, okay, that's fine. And then I walk out and they're like, oh, will you give me 30? And I'm like, no, 20. And then I start going backwards. I'm like, I'll give you 18. And then, I mean, it's just so much fun to me because I like to feel like I get a good deal. And here's what happens. I walk out of that store and I bought that purse for whatever, for Corey, for 20 bucks, $25, whatever. And I think, man, I got a great deal. And that guy that sold me that purse is like, man, I robbed that guy, right? (laughs) Because that's how it works. That's what's so fun about it. I love to negotiate. I love to feel like I get a good deal. I've told this story before, but I remember walking into a store one time. I was on a student retreat with some student ministry folks, and I remember walking into a store and seeing that almost everything in the store was on sale. And so I was excited. I thought, man, I love a good sale. So I walk up to one of the signs, and I see there's a pair of headphones, and I was actually in the market for headphones at that point. And so I walk up to them, and I see that these headphones were on sale for $29.98. I think, man, it's a big red sign. It says sale. It's got a price in big, bold letters. And what my eyes kind of naturally gravitated to was the original price, which was $29.99. The sale was a penny. But I really felt like I needed to buy those headphones because I didn't want to miss out on the sale, right? Because we love to feel like we're getting a good deal. And so today, as we kind of continue our series talking about any questions, these are questions that Jesus himself asked uh, as he was doing ministry and walking on the earth. This was actually the topic that we were going to talk about last week. Pastor Mark, who was here with us, our senior pastor at both of our Mount Perry North locations, was going to speak on this topic and didn't do so. The Holy Spirit kind of led him a different direction, and so I, I just kept this topic and, and felt like the Lord just wanted us to kind of land here again today. And so we're going to continue in this, looking to Luke chapter 10. If you've got a Bible, you want to flip there with me to Luke chapter 10. We're going to spend a, a, the majority of our time there in Luke 10 reading the story that uh, starts out with a question where it looks like a lawyer is trying to get a good deal. It looks like he's really trying to see how he can get something for, you know, something big for something little maybe, or he's trying to figure out what's the, what's the transaction that's required there in this interaction, in this relationship with Jesus Christ. And so beginning reading in verse 25, if you don't have a Bible, you don't have a smartphone or anything that can follow along, most of these scriptures today will be on the screen behind me, and I'll try to stay out of your way so you can, you can read them. But this is Luke chapter 10. Beginning in verse 25, this is what it says. On one occasion, an expert in the law, or a lawyer, stood up to test Jesus. That's important that he was testing Jesus, so remember that. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And so stop here for just a second. You can interpret that a lot of different ways. You can interpret that to mean, how do I get to heaven? But really, in the Jewish understanding, this would not have just been about heaven or the afterlife. This would really have been about, how do I inherit the life that you bless? How do I inherit the life? How do I get the fully blessed life that you intend for us to live here on earth? Continue reading in verse 26. What is written in the law, Jesus replied. And uh, what do you read? how do you read it? And he answered, the lawyer answered back to him, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, depending on how you're reading this, you can see in most of the translations that those two phrases are different quotations. So the part that says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and with, and, and with, uh, with all your strength and with all your mind, that is in one section of quotes. Then the quote closes, then it says, and, and then a new quote opens up, and it says, love your neighbor as yourself, and then that quotation ends. The lawyer here is quoting two different parts of the Old Testament law. The first part of loving God with everything you are 
is found in Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is really the place where um, God is helping establish through Moses all of the different things that the people are supposed to be about. And so we, see, we read in Deuteronomy 6 verse 5 that they're to love God with all of their heart, all their soul, all their mind, and all of their strength. And so we read that in Deuteronomy 6. And the lawyer doesn't end there. So he has asked Jesus, how do I live this life that you bless? How do I inherit eternal life? Jesus says, well, what's written in the law? And the lawyer, very specifically, very succinctly, um, he takes all the information of the law, which is a lot. It's really the portion of the first five books of the Old Testament. He sums all that up by saying, love God, you know, Deuteronomy 6. And then he transitions and, and quotes Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. And he says this, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, this is something that we heard Jesus himself do in the gospel accounts when Jesus was asked, what is the most important commandment? Jesus himself also summed up the entire law with these two phrases by quoting Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19. But what we see here is that this lawyer came to test Jesus, and not only did he come to test Jesus, as Jesus flips it back on him and asks him a question, instead of answering the question, Jesus asks him a different question, and so the lawyer is prepared to give an answer. Now, that may not surprise you, but he was ready, because what he did is he said, hey, I, I, I want to know your answer. Jesus refuses to answer, asks him a question, and the lawyer comes ready with what appears to be the correct answer. And so he gives him this, hey, love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Two different ideas that are joined, are connected, and again, Jesus himself even connected those. So let's continue reading in verse 28. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. The lawyer wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? So Jesus says to him after he gives the response, he says, hey, you're right. What you said is exactly the right answer. Congratulations, you win. You get a gold star. That's awesome. Just do this. To answer your question, the original question that you asked me, how do I inherit eternal life? Do what you just told me. Love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Love your neighbor yourself. Do this and you will get exactly what you're asking for. But it wasn't quite enough for the lawyer to be right. Remember, he was testing Jesus. Remember, this was a larger thing that was happening here. He wanted to win the argument. And so as he tries to justify himself, he asks Jesus another question. He says, and who is my neighbor? Now, this is the question we're going to look at today. (coughs) I'm going to look at this idea of who is my neighbor? Because if you really understand the question behind the question, you know, most of the time when we ask questions, there's actually a question behind the question. You know, if you're talking to a significant other, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a husband, or a wife, maybe, and you ask them a question, what I've learned is the question is not really the question. It's the question behind the question. And you have to be able to interpret what is actually being asked here. And so what you have this lawyer saying is, hey, who is my neighbor? Now, What I think he's really asking, and we're going to kind of dive into this a little more in just a minute, is not who is my neighbor. I think he's actually asking, how do I get a good deal? I think he's saying here, okay, if I'm supposed to love God with everything, that's a pretty high bar to meet. And if I'm supposed to love my neighbor as myself, like if I'm supposed to love someone else as much as I love myself, 
then, then how do I, what's the lowest common denominator? What's the lowest bar that I can go down to? Who's my neighbor? I don't think he's actually asking who's my neighbor. I think he's probably asking who isn't my neighbor? Who do I not have to love as myself? Who is on the exclusion list? Who do I get to ignore? Who do I get to mistreat? Who can I just kind of push to the side and not focus on them? I want to focus on the people I'm supposed to focus on. So I need to make sure that I know who's included in this neighbor category that I'm supposed to love as myself. And I need to know who's not included so that I am able to live life as I want to live it, but do just enough to inherit the kind of life that you bless. And so he asks him, he said, who is my neighbor? And Jesus, again, amazingly, does not answer the question. He doesn't even answer the guy. He just begins to tell a story. So let's read kind of a larger chunk of text here. This is about six or seven verses, beginning in verse 30. This is Jesus's response to the question, who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers, and they stripped him of his clothes, and they beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going by down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Now stop here for just a second. The priests and the Levites were the groups of people that were set aside by God in the Old Testament as the spiritual authority of the children of Israel. These were the people that God spoke through, and these were the people that God used to bring about reconciliation of his people back to himself. So these were people that were held in high regard and had a high place of spiritual authority and and, and spiritual standing in their community. And so Jesus, in telling this story, starts by saying, hey, a man's half dead. He's been stripped of his clothes, robbed of everything he has. He's laying in the ditch over on the side of the road. And then the two groups of people that you would look to as the spiritual authorities, you would look to as the kinds of people who are used by God to do something good They walk by on the other side of the street and ignore the man who is in need. But listen to this in verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. And he went to him and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and he gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. Which of these three, so the story's now over, Jesus is now addressing the crowd again. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law, the lawyer replied, the one who had mercy on him, and Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Now, Interestingly to me, because I love these dynamics, the lawyer had asked Jesus two questions. Jesus refused to answer either of those two questions. He knew he was being tested. And instead of answering those questions, he asked two different questions. Instead of, uh, instead of, you know, kind of answering what the lawyer said here, even in the second part, he tells a story. And then at the end of the story, he asks a question of the lawyer. Okay, who do you think was the neighbor? Who do you think kind of fulfilled what you were asking? Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands? And then the lawyer, again, is the one answering the question. He was the one who asked the question. But now he's the one answering the questions. And he says, you know, the man, the one who had mercy on him. He didn't call him by his name. And in the story, the only name that he was called was the Samaritan. But he didn't call him by that. He just said the one who had mercy on him. The Samaritan was good. 
That's why we refer to this story as the Good Samaritan. He was good because he helped the man. But unless we understand the full context of the relationship between Jews and Samaritans, we may miss a huge part of this story and really why it was so meaningful and why I believe Jesus chose to use this kind of story to talk to the people in answering the question, who is my neighbor? Because we have to understand that the story of the Samaritans goes back all the way, really all the way to Joseph. Joseph is found in Genesis 38 through 50. Uh, and we read his story, and he's the guy that had dreams. And then we can see that Joseph, uh, he, he, not only that, but he goes, and he's the most powerful man in uh, Pharaoh's kingdom, and he, he helps during famine to, to, to have, feed all the people. And we see all these amazing things through the story of Joseph. And Joseph has some sons. And then later we see the 12 tribes of Israel, and a part of those tribes are made up of a group of people that inhabit a certain portion of the land of Israel. And then later in the history of Israel, we see that there's a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, and we see that some of those people are taken captive, and there's a group of people that are left during that season of captivity, and those are the people that have inhabited the land of Samaria. And those Samaritans, those people in that land, <coughs> they didn't have to, to take part in all the different uh, captivity, the bondage. They didn't have to go away and then come back. And their story was different. And so the Jews and the Samaritans throughout their history had been fighting. And not only that, but they didn't see eye to eye on even the way that they were to keep some of the Jewish law. They didn't see eye to eye on how they were to treat one another or treat other people. And let me just kind of read a portion of something that I found as I was studying just to, to help maybe bring some modern context to this relationship between Jews and Samaritans because I think this is important before we read a different passage of Scripture about Samaritans. This is what I, I read in one of my study resources. It says this, There are countless modern parallels to the Jewish-Samaritan uh, enmity that they, they had towards one another. Indeed, wherever people are divided by racial or ethnic barriers. Perhaps that's why the gospel, the gospels and acts provide so many instances of Samaritans coming into contact with the message of Jesus. It is not the person uh, from the radical, a radically different culture on the other side of the world that is the hardest to love, but the nearby neighbor whose skin color, language, rituals, values, ancestry, history, or even customs are different from our own. And so what you have here is you have a group of people who are almost living side by side. They're living in one town next to another town. They're almost living in subdivision next to subdivision. And these groups of people don't see eye to eye. I've heard it said that it's easier sometimes for us to go around the world and witness to someone who doesn't know Jesus on the other side of the world than it is for us to walk across the street and talk about Jesus to our neighbor. Give me just a second. <coughs> And so what we see is sometimes it's easier for us to go all the way. Thank you so much. It's easier for us to go all the way around the world sometimes and actually proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to a people that we'll never meet again, we'll never see again maybe, than it is for us to cross the street. And sometimes the reason is that in our local context, in our local communities, what we have is we have these dividing lines that we have created, race and ethnicity. And sometimes it's, it's social status. It's, it's how much money they make and how much money we make. And it's what house they live in and what house we live in. And it's what car they drive. It's where they go to school and where we go to school. It's where they work and where we work. It's, it's their past and our past. And we create these barriers that cause us to view people in a different light that has nothing to do with the gospel. It has nothing to do with the message of Jesus Christ. Instead, it's something we've created that become barriers to the gospel actually getting into and changing the lives of people because we refuse to cross those lines. 
And if you don't believe me, let's look at Luke chapter 9. This is right before the, the passage of Scripture that we've been reading. We've been reading kind of a chunk in Luke 10. If you go back just a little bit, Jesus and his disciples are traveling around. They're walking around doing ministry. And this is what it says beginning in verse 52 of Luke 9. It says this, As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He's on his way to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. He was headed through the Samaritan village all the way to Jerusalem. So he sent uh, these people up to get, them, to get them ready to do the things he wanted to do in that village. But the people there in that village did not welcome him because he was headed for Jerusalem. And when the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, listen to this, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? I'm just going to let that one land for a second. Two of the guys that have been walking around with a man who says, I'm the son of God, the gospel is for everyone, I came to seek and save the lost, they get a bad report about their travel itinerary. You ever been delayed on a flight? Right? You, you had a flight you were planning to get on and you were, you were going to Des Moines, but it was raining in Des Moines, and so they were like, hey, we're going to have to reroute you to Tulsa. And now you're ticked, right? And so now you are bad-mouthing Delta or American Airlines or Continental. None of those people made it rain. But you are frustrated that they have not developed technology to put the plane in a bubble that will not be affected by the rain so that you can get to Des Moines like you originally planned. This is what's happening here. James and John lose their minds, when they hear that their travel itinerary has been disrupted. They sent out, hey, we're going to go through this Samaritan village on our way to Jerusalem because Jesus says we got to get to Jerusalem. There's something big going to happen in Jerusalem in a few days. And so we got to get there. And they get word back that the people in the Samaritan village says, no, you can't come here because you're headed for Jerusalem. You Jews are headed to do something in the holy city, and so you can't stop here. And so they don't respond by saying, oh, well, I guess we'll have to go around they say to Jesus, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to kill them? Now, I've been with some people who were delayed in their travels, and they've said something very similar. None of you, I don't think I've traveled with any of you that just lost your ever-living minds when you had to sit in traffic. Because, you know, you had to be there by 10, and it takes 30 minutes, and so you left at, you know, obviously 945, and you're in a hurry... And now traffic is backed up and you are screaming and yelling and shaking your fist at somebody to tell them they're number one and screaming and yelling and so angry because it's their fault you're now going to be late. And so you would say what James and John said. Lord, can you just send fire from heaven and destroy all the cars between here and my meeting? Right. You've never done that. I realize you've never done that. This is what James and John are doing. Now, why would this be acceptable? Because this was not a group of God-fearing Jews that they were calling down fire on. These were just Samaritans. They were just people that had no value. These were people that they didn't respect. These were people that they didn't see as anything worth their time. If these Samaritans didn't want them coming to their village, psh, forget them. We'll burn them up. They're like, no, these are Samaritans. We don't have to value them. We don't have to, to validate who they are or what they're about. 
And so now we see that even those closest to Jesus had some kind of, I don't know, like bias, discrimination towards these Samaritans. And then we come back to this story where Jesus is answering a question. And in doing so, he doesn't say that the priest is the hero. He doesn't say that the Levite is the hero. You know who the hero of the story is? One of those Samaritans that has no value. One of those people that we discriminate against. One of those people that we have bias against. Not because of the gospel message, but because of something that we have created. Because of something that we have said is important. And it's interesting to me here that Jesus does two very powerful things in his interaction with this lawyer. Two very powerful things that I think he would do for you and I today. The first one is this. He changes the question. You remember the original question that the lawyer asked him? He said, who is my neighbor? That's the question that he asked Jesus. When he was trying to figure out if he got a good deal or not, he said, who is my neighbor? What's the lowest common denominator? Who do I get to exclude? Who can I discriminate against with no repercussions? Who can I have bias against with no ill will done towards me? Who is my neighbor? And what did Jesus say? In verse 36, he says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man? He he completely changed the question. The lawyer wanted to know the identity of the people that he was supposed to interact with. He wanted the noun. Who is the neighbor over there? Who is the person, place, or thing that I am supposed to interact with? And who's the person, place, or thing that I'm not supposed to interact with? I, I want the noun here. And what does Jesus do? He puts neighboring into action. He makes it a verb. He takes it away from the ability for you and I to parse words here and say, okay, um, you can be nice to those people, but it's okay if you're mean to those people. Like, that's what the lawyer was asking. And Jesus said, no, 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 I'm not even going to entertain that. Let's change this, and let's tell a story, and let's make the hero someone that you think has no value as he puts his neighboring into action. And then let me ask you, who was the neighbor? Like, how did he demonstrate his neighboring here? And he said, the one who had mercy, the one who verbed neighboring, the one who neighbored someone, the one who not only helped him up out of the ditch, but also went the extra mile and took him to an inn and had him to get cared for. And he paid out of his own pocket. It wasn't just a dollar slice of pizza. It was two denarii. And he said to the innkeeper, he said, hey, here's two denarii. And if when I get back, that's not enough. I'll pay you even more. He went above and beyond. He put his neighboring into action. It wasn't a noun anymore. It was now a verb. My neighbor is not the guy that lives in the house next to me. My neighbor is not the girl that sits in class beside me. It's not a noun. It's not a person, a place, or a thing. There is no dividing line now about groups of people that I get to be nice to or can uh, choose to ignore. It just says, no, I, I have to put that into action. My spirituality is not an excuse. The priests and the Levites were not the hero of the story. I can't hide behind my Christianity 
and shun certain people. Hello. I can't do that anymore. Some of the Christians that I know are some of the most opinionated, discriminating, racist, ugly people I've ever been around. And they hide behind Christianity as the excuse that it's okay to do that. No, Jesus says no. That's, that's actually not how this story plays out because the spiritual people are the people that ignored the man and they're not the hero of the story. And the spiritual people are the people that I'm talking to right now as I'm telling the story actually in Luke 10. And those are the groups of people I'm talking to. It says, hey, okay, so who was the neighbor here? Who acted more like a neighbor? And they had no choice but to answer and say, it was the guy who showed mercy. Well, guess what? Mercy is what we want to receive. And so mercy is what we should give. In response to the mercy that we have received from God as Christians, for those of us in the room who are, in response and in anticipation of the mercy that we desire from God, we should be the most merciful people on the planet. And yet somehow we want God's grace to extend just far enough to our stuff, but surely he can't reach those people way past us. He says, no, 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 no. The spiritual people actually missed it because they were so busy doing their job that they walked right by a guy in the ditch that just needed a hand to reach out and help. He says, your neighbor's not the person that lives beside you. Your neighbor is the person where you put it into action. Who acted like a neighbor? I'm the neighbor when I put my faith in action. My neighbor's not my guy that lives beside me. I get to choose to be the neighbor. If I ignore him, I'm not his neighbor. I just live beside him. But when I, when I know he's in a tight spot, and so I go over and he's been sick and he can't, can't get out of his house. And so I go over and I just, I just mow his grass. I come home and I just take their trash and their trash cans and just roll it back to the side of their house. I know somebody on the job is hurting financially. And so when we all go to lunch together and they, they're kind of afraid to be able to go because they, you know they can't afford it. I just say, hey, why don't you come? I'll pick yours up today. It's the neighborly thing to do. To invest in a relationship with someone who you know is lonely. To find someone who's younger than you and searching for identity and searching for purpose. And help to call out the greatness that exists in them. It's the neighborly thing to do. That's what Jesus did. He changed the question about what someone else was to what we're called to do. And then he did something crazy. He changed the answer. Because this Jewish leader, this lawyer, this guy who understood the law, he quoted it. He took two Old Testament passages and combined them together to be the answer of his own question. He knew the law. He said, who's my neighbor? And Jesus makes the hero of the story to answer the question this Samaritan that has no value in this culture. This man who would have been looked down upon. No one would have given the time of day. 
the Samaritan wasn't the one in the ditch, mind you. He was the one that pulled him out of the ditch. He changed the answer. The neighbor wasn't the priest. The neighbor wasn't the Levite. And the neighbor wasn't the lawyer. The neighbor was the person that you and I, whether we want to admit it or not, we're not convinced God can use them. We're not convinced God can save them. We're not convinced that they have any value to God or to us. We're not convinced they'll ever amount to anything. We're not convinced that they're good for anything. All they ever seem to do is mess it up. They look different than us. They act different than us. They smell different than us. They behave differently than we think they should behave. And yet Jesus says, hey, they're the neighbor. They're not just your neighbor who you're supposed to act that way. They're actually the hero of the story. They're actually the one that as you overlook them, I actually see that they have far more value than you ever think. And so as we pray today, I just want to challenge you with two ideas. Be careful the questions that you ask. Because the questions that you ask might reveal a part of your heart that you're a little unsure of, a little embarrassed by. It may allow God to root out some things in you that you feel justified in. That's what the lawyer said, right? Wanting to be justified, he asked. What are those places that you justify in your heart? Who are the groups of people that you justify that you can mistreat? Who are the people that you justify that you get to overlook them and it's okay? You get to talk bad about them. You get to tell jokes about them and you justify it because it's okay. Hear the words of Jesus today. Which one of these was the neighbor? Be careful the questions that you ask and be, quest be careful the answers that you assume. Instead, just approach Jesus not looking for a good deal. Don't walk up with your dollar and say, hey, Jesus, what can I get for this? Like, like what's the bare minimum? Like, how much spirituality will this buy me? How much of heaven will this get me into? How much church do I need to attend to be good? How much of my Bible do I have to read? How many life groups do I have to attend? How often do I have to serve What will this get me, Jesus? Because the answer to that question was nothing. He says, I don't want your dollar. I want you to put your faith in action without discrimination. He says, I'm not looking for you just to find a good deal. Instead, I want you to love God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your strength and all of your mind. And so I'll start with me and just tell you that I haven't gotten there yet. I've still got some parts that don't quite get to all. He says, not only that, I want you to love your neighbor as yourself. I want you to quit justifying the groups of people that you get to mistreat and overlook and joke about. 
And so I just want us to pray today. And I just want to ask the Lord to kind of search all of our hearts and ask us how we can be better neighbors. How can I not just allow proximity to be what I'm searching for, but how can I put my faith into action in a way that actually represents the mercy that I've received or I desire from God? And how can I extend that to other people? God, I, um, I thank you today for this incredible passage of Scripture. And I thank you for the uncomfortable challenge that it offers to us. I pray, Lord, that you would help each one of us to be careful the questions that we ask and to be careful the answers that we assume. And that, God, we would search our hearts today to determine if we've looked for neighbor as a noun or we've made neighbor a verb. If we have put our faith into action without discrimination to say we want to serve those who just need a helping hand to pull them out of the ditch. But we also want to realize that there are people who may look different than us, act different than us. They may not have anything in common with us except that they are living out what it means to be a neighbor. God, help us today to see you working in and through every group of people that you work in and through and not to position ourselves as the judge but to open our eyes to the work that you're doing as you work in and through us as well in jesus name we pray